Hello, this is Nathan Tankis, bringing you the Notes on the Crises podcast, which is the audio complement to my newsletter, Notes on the Crises. On our second episode, I have the great honor to talk to Adam Tews, history professor at Columbia University, about his new book, Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. This topic is, of course, of great interest to me since I created Notes on the Crises in March 19th of 2020 to cover this topic in live time. Um, And we're at the end of 2021 and almost two years on from that point. So I thought it would make sense to step back and look back at the foundational things that happened in 2020. And what better way than to speak to Professor Tews about his book? Thank you for being on the show, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you on. So, you know, let's start with that. Can you, can you bring us back to the very beginning of 2020? What was happening in the world? What did the world look like before all this sort of happened? Yeah, I, it's difficult to do, isn't it? It's, 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 not, it's, not, it's not easy to get back there. You know, maybe in our dreams, we kind of, you know, we, 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 we do this and then we wake up screaming to realize we're still, we really aren't and we never can. Um, it's difficult. It's easy to, I think, you know, kind of uh, candy coat it. I mean, but but if you look back to, you know, try and anchor yourself in something like, I don't know, the IMF's outlook on the world economy early, in early 2020, they didn't anticipate the body blow that was about to strike the world economy, but they were not optimistic, to be honest, about, you know, what was coming up. Um Fundamentally, you know, the the world was dealing with the anxiety provoked by Trump and, you know, the escalation of tension with China. That's kind of front and center. There was quite a lot of somewhat scandalous econometrics being done, scandalous because of the places it was being done in on, um, you know, the levels of uncertainty and their impact on investment. Like the Fed was in a surreptitious way trying to quantify the impact of bad President Trump and Stuff like that. So that was all knocking around. And then there was an overarching concern with with the Anthropocene, but it took the form of the climate question. So the big picture issue of the environment and our unbalanced relationship to it was very much on everyone's minds. But we were all very focused on on climate and, and not on not on not on what was about to hit us. So, I mean, that's, I think, the way the world looked. There was in the financial sphere, there was, and you are, you know, the master of this stuff, but, you know, there had, after all, been, well, there were two lots of concerns. A, there was deflation concern in 2019, especially in the Eurozone, which had triggered the ECB into modest levels of quantitative easing. Again, very scandalous, caused a huge kind of ruckus in Europe. Christine Lagarde took over at the ECB under circumstances of considerable, you know, disturbance. The FT was running op-eds about how scandalous it was that the German conservatives were on the warpath and all of that. And then in the in the US, um, the, there'd been like the mark, the setback in the markets. The the Fed was pulling back from the tightening cycle that it was on. And then there was the, the repo market incident of September, right? So there was also in the finan- in the in the technical financial sphere, there was there was considerable concern that the the model wasn't working. The normalization path that had been mapped since 2008 was not actually realistic. And a lot, the strategic reviews, like the ECB and the Fed's strategic reviews of policy, were not triggered by 2020. They were triggered by those concerns. So there was, even before we, we were, you know, blindsided by the pandemic shock, there were a lot of big question marks out there. And, and what did... 
coronavirus look like in the beginning of, Jan- of, of 2020, in January 2020? Above all, I think it looked, you know, it would later become something that we accuse Trump of of doing. But I think, in fact, in fairness, the consensual view was that it was a Chinese problem. It was a Chinese virus. It was a, you know, it was the Wuhan virus. It was Chinese flu. And then the politer version of that was, you know, it's China's Chernobyl moment. It's somebody else's problem, a place far away of which we know little, famous last words, you know, it was really their problem. And, and you know, there, was a, there was an awareness in the markets by way of China's weight in the world economy that if something bad happened to China, well, this would have an effect on commodity markets, emerging market exporters of commodities would be hard hit, so on and so forth. But there really wasn't until remarkably late in February, and you can kind of time it, I think it's like the last week of February, where you really see the market opinion tip from being, oh, damn, China's taken a hit to, oh, my God, this could affect all of us. Um, but in that first month, really, from 20th of January, when Beijing acknowledges the existence of the virus through to that last week of February, there was this sense, I think, really, it was somebody else's problem. It didn't concern the West directly. Um, you know, there were these bizarre EU press conferences where all they want to talk about is how they're going to help African countries deal with the issue when it hits them because they don't have healthcare systems. So there was a really slow awakening to the fact that this was actually no, literally a pandemic in the sense it could affect every body on the planet. Can you say more about this Chernobyl um, metaphor? I remember it very vaguely from the beginning of 2020, but it's totally out of my mind now. What did people mean by Wuhan was China's Chernobyl? And can you guide us through all the different ways in which that analogy is a failure? Yeah, I mean, I think... I mean, to my mind, the reason why I like highlight is it, is it seems to me to really neatly encapsulate a strain of thinking. I would like to call it wishful thinking. Those who were dear to it, of course, think it's just nothing but realism, which says that China is really just riding for a fall. At some point, the Chinese success story is going to come to a grinding halt, right? And they're going to run out of puff. And... It could be middle income trap stories. It could be the failure of the education system in rural areas. It could be demography. It could be ethnic conflicts. You know, take your pick. Like liberal American social scientists are chock a block with ideas about why China's growth is going to come to some terminal halt. Because after all, it would be super convenient if that were the case, or at least superficially it would be convenient, because then you wouldn't have to deal with the awesome fact of the West's overtaking by China. Thinking through the consequences of an actual stop to Chinese growth, I think, you know, that, that's a whole nother track we can go down. But there is this real predisposition to expect this. And for me, and then there's this other model, which is a vision of how the Soviet Union was brought down. And in that, the nuclear reactor accident in Chernobyl in 86, uh, in what is now Ukraine, um, plays a key role. And that was highlighted by the HBO series, which purely coincidentally happened to come out. I think it was in 2019. A lot of people watched it. It gives this very impressive, grim vision of the late Soviet Union and how failures of communication, desire to repress the news, the scandalous revelation of what was going on, delegitimizes an authoritarian regime. So you put the two things together, the underlying desire for a bad news story about China and this particular model of how a bad news story might unfold, 
Plus, the third element in this is the reality of the 2003 SARS moment, which was, I think, understood by the Chinese regime to a considerable extent as a Chernobyl-like incident. And you've got yourself quite a powerful image. The the mistake there, I don't think, is really so much to think that China isn't vulnerable because China was quite vulnerable and it could have gone terribly wrong. And if the clock had stopped at the end of February, it would have been a huge blow to the legitimacy of the regime. And they had to work incredibly hard to repress this. The difference, of course, between modern China and late 80s decrepit you know, late stage Soviet Union is that the, the Chinese regime has awesome capacities to repress, mobilize, stabilize this situation. But the more fundamental difference is that the more fundamental problem is that the Western analysts just simply didn't grasp that this wasn't Chernobyl in the sense that this could go everywhere, that Wuhan is a city of 10 million people, very affluent, tightly connected to the global airways and so therefore, anything that happened in Wuhan was not just a local problem for the Chinese regime, but a huge problem for everyone on the planet. And, and that communication problem, that communication problem from the Chernobyl metaphor of yeah. experts failing to communicate and leaders papering over how bad things are is actually a, a kind of universal metaphor, especially for the Western response rather than something that's exactly i mean you know if you wanted to be polemical you could say if anyone suffered a chernobyl it was you know boris johnson or trump or but it doesn't really work for them either but but certainly in terms of the ultimate blow to legitimacy and as exactly as you say the kind of naked and painful exposure of the the incoherence of, of modern governance in moments like that yeah absolutely the west it does become much more it does but indeed become a kind of universal model rather than a whereas i think in the initial liberal reading it's you know a particular problem of authoritarianisms that will ultimately be they'll be exposed because they have problems with the science or the truth or something as opposed to <laughs> us you know who, who have such an unmediated and unproblematic relationship to those to those forces so you know for this next bit, rather than focusing on what happened, I think what I want to highlight is what didn't happen. In February 2020, what didn't happen that was so crucial in in its absence, in the absence of action in that moment? What was this blank space and how important was it? Yeah, I think I like the way you I like the cautious way you put it, actually, because this isn't a book, and I don't think um I wouldn't have a lot of time for a kind of critique that said, well, they should have done X and here's the counterfactual and here's my model that would show you how everything would turn out much better. Because the problem precisely is that the thing which in retrospect seems like the obvious thing to have done early on was in fact at the time well nigh unthinkable, which is that what we should have done, I think we now know, and we live with it as a daily reality now, is they should just have shut all of the major airports around the world to traffic that was in any way associated with China or that could have been involved in early contact. And they should have done very systematic tracing um, of people that were potentially exposed. And the very as soon as you say that out loud, now, of course, it's the reality. You know, you can't really, it's not, not very easy at all to tra- visit China now. And, you know, almost two years later, um, and we've gotten used to extremely tough restrictions, comparatively speaking, even on, you know, incredibly well-frequented routes like London to New York. 
But um, in February in 2020, to have suggested that, I think, would have put you, you know, really on the left field of the conversation. And if, you know, say, I don't know, Governor Cuomo or de Blasio had said, look, to protect our city, what we need to do is shut JFK. There would have been an indignant, there would have been screams of, you know, howls of protest, quite likely. And the Chinese instantly mobilized this. Also accusations of, you know, racism, discrimination, yellow peril, and 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 with good reason, because as we know perfectly well, all the way back to the 19th century, um, you know, Western fear of Asian contagion is is you know, it's not even to say it's racialized misses the point. It's like you know, from the very beginning, a racialized notion, a fear of contamination from the East is is part of the way in which Europeans and Americans have always understood plagues. And many of the early health conventions were framed precisely with that in view. In fact, one of the central preoccupations of the British Empire in regulating the Indian Ocean, which was for a time, you know, a lake within the British Empire, was regulating the pandemic risks from the annual Hajj pilgrimage to Mecca, uh, which was one of the largest movements of people in the world, all the way still down to the present day, and moves people from the subcontinent to the Suez region from where obviously then um, contagion can spread easily to Europe. And, and with, and with good, and the last big scandalous incident of this type is the plague, you know, the outbreak of bubonic plague in, in India in the early 1990s, which caused unsurprisingly an abrupt panic stricken shutdown of all air traffic to India, even though it was very localized in the end, easily contained. And as it were, it generalized from one rather small part of India to a gigantic, you know, continent-sized nation. Anyway, so those are the kind of concerns that immediately come into play here, which make it quite difficult to actually do what, in retrospect, seems like the obvious thing to have done early on. That absence that that I'm talking about, I I even want to go further than, like, the policies that they should have done to respond to the crisis. The absence of even seeing a problem that they needed to mobilize around as something that was like central to the governance that they were doing, not as you say, like European governance on behalf of African countries or like the, the absence is even to get together and, and have an idea of what's going on to the point where something like shutting down airports would even suggest itself as like to even suggest that as a policy solution to a problem, you have to have a conception that there's a problem which that would be a response to. Yeah, and the funny—I mean, that's very—that's very nicely put. Um, you know, if you could, I decide that that you did have that problem, then suggesting the closure of an airport would not, in fact, be un- unreasonable. And 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 what's really kind of just staggering in retrospect is that you know, after all, every state on the uh, certainly every sophisticated, well-resourced state on the planet, in fact, has squads of people whose job it was precisely to do that. You know, both Britain and the United States had, by that point, almost a generation of experience of, you know, staffing and paying for teams of people that whose specialism was bioterrorism. And both were ranked globally as, you know, top countries in terms of bioterroristic preparedness. We know there were all these, you know, in retrospect, kind of ghostly war game exercises of pandemic preparedness that were going on in 2019. And and so it's a remarkable instance of, as it were, having, in fact, within the apparatus of the state, um, organizations that were in the business, exactly of saying what you're saying, in other words, 
calling an emergency and then, as it were, by doing so, enabling quite far-reaching draconian kind of steps to be taken. And yet at the crucial moment, there was this missing, there was a missing link, right? There was that, there wasn't, as it were, the the willingness, the capacity, perhaps the imagination to say, oh shit, this is actually, you know, this is not a drill. This is actually now the case where we have to do this. Despite, and this is despite the fact that China was modeling it for us, this goes back to the salience of the Chernobyl example. I mean, if Beijing, a city of what, 20 million people, has to cut itself off from Wuhan, a city of 10 million people, and these two places are not close together, right? I mean, that's long distance flying within China. Then how is it that we imagine that Tokyo and by way of Tokyo, then, you know, everywhere else is not also having to do that? Like it's, it remains, as it were, Though China, in fact, provided us with a precise, you know, analog model of what it was that we needed to do, it nevertheless the penny didn't drop until critically too late, and we needed. I mean, if you read the accounts of the British, you know, state machine where there's been extensive um, post mortems, it's pretty evident that it was the Italian decision, not until as it were the first week of March, that really changed the Overton window, the you know the the realm of what was thinkable for the Brits. If the Italians were doing it, then okay, fine. Then you had to consider maybe the option that the Brits would have to do it too. Not just because the soccer league connects them and Brits go on holiday in Italy, but there was something else, you know, about it just coming that much closer. And it's you know this also gets back to China as you know just that's China, yes, rather than a gigantic. Modern like, geographic region where you know, I mean, we don't even part of you know, the global economy that we're all part of. Yeah, we don't have any sense of like, oh, well, this being you know going with being traveling within China is just traveling within China, not yeah. going a third of the way across the globe. Yeah, no, no, no. It's it's really it's a profound that that for me is you know the significant one of the one of the things that makes 2020 so fascinating is it's another instance 2008 was another instance right we talk all the time about globalization especially the global elite talks all the time about globalization but they they have an incredibly attenuated grasp of what that actually means and what it would mean in practice is exactly as you say that that you know move on to beijing i mean that just opens up all those other options everywhere else has to take this you know deadly seriously um, and so this starts to bring us at the end of February, you know, coming into March, we're starting to get towards the more familiar yeah. um, story. And one of the things that are very interesting that you, you, you talk about in the book, and this is a little bit of an aside, is that throughout February, there is this sort of disjuncture where bond traders who, and bond trading is inherently about what the Fed or other central banks is going to do, and interest rates are about, they use interest rates to manage the economy, so that's about recessions. Bond traders, bond prices are shooting up, which means the interest rates are going down in expectation of more interest rate cuts in the future, um, meaning they're expecting a recession. But stock market remains optimistic until kind of later in this stage. Can you talk a, a little bit about that and that that's just juncture. Yeah, it was. I mean, it's. I don't think it's altogether untypical to see movements like that, right? So, and and the. I mean, when the the fully classic pattern of a recession sets in, what you see is people, you know, at least according to the sort of textbook model, 
reality is always more complicated. But folks running out of equities, running out of stocks and into bonds because, you know, one is riskier than the other. And so you go to a safe haven asset. So then bond prices surge and yields go down and you have the mechanism that you're talking about. And in a sense, what we saw in February is kind of one element of that story without the other. And then between the last week of February and the and so between like, you know, I can't remember quite what the days of the week are, but it's like, you know, February 23rd through March 6th, what we see is that classic pattern kicking in. So earlier in February, we see people moving into bonds, not much selling of equities yet. Then, as it were, from late February onwards, the equity sales begin and for those two weeks, we see the classic kind of rotation out of equities into bonds. And the, the you know, things get really serious then in March 9th, Monday, when, when everything just starts selling. So we see a sort of three-phase pattern of a preliminary shift into bonds without a huge move out of equities, then the classic rotation out of equities into bonds, and then, and then uh, the dash for cash, so-called, um, from the second week of March. I mean, that's a stylized description of a complex process, but, but um, yeah, yeah, first approximation. That, that, yeah, this is very interesting to me because, you know, I myself had been caught up in my own, you know, personal life stuff in January and February. And it was precisely not like I think the late February, but like early March, uh, the dramatic drop in, in yields was my like moment to step up and wake up and go, oh, something's going on. And I yeah. have to, you know, pay attention to it. Yeah. And it was like not that far after that that I was that I was starting to socially distance more and then read the um the United College of London paper um and which said, you know, twelve to eighteen months basically uh until we had a vaccine to get uh to get it under control yeah. that I started that I started isolating, but it was precisely that moment as a signal for me. And it's interesting the way, you know, you talk about in the book, how stock market indices are the mainstay for upper middle-class people who are worried about their portfolio, but most people, the financial news that's important to them really is, are, are interest rates really dropping or not? Because that should be telling them about their job prospects. And it's interesting that inversion in terms of how the media covers things. Yeah. I mean, the media coverage is, and America is completely different to anywhere else on the planet, right? I mean, like European news does not cover the markets <laughs> in the way the American media does. I mean, just yeah. full stop, it doesn't, right? The only place you can get it is the American channels. You can see those in most hotel rooms in Europe, but but no one else gets... I mean, the German news will give you the DAX. It gives you the stock, absurdly, because like hardly any Germans own any shares. Um, and the majority of the shares on the German stock exchange are owned by foreigners, crazily. But... But so there are these rituals of reporting the news. If you look at it, it, it seems that, as it were, the story explodes on March 9th. And, and yeah. we can measure this through lots of different indicators. But I actually think when you see simultaneous oil price collapse, stock markets sell off, and we actually saw yields rising that day because, you know, things were going crazy. That breaks, I think, the envelope of news awareness across all channels. And what we see then is exactly as you say, we actually begin to see all the physical indicators of mobility and so on adjust, begin to adjust across the United States. In the US, I would venture the hypothesis. It's not like seriously tested anywhere. But I think actually that sort of financial news as 
you know, like what's that guy called Kramer? You know, there's the yeah. sort of like the as we famously know by the by the end of March it was commonplace, but this crossover between sports commentary and 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 um, and financial news creates a kind of well, it creates a crossover. It creates a kind of segue in the US where if you have a really big day, you know, the kind of the markets take over the news cycle and just drive everything, and they then become the conveyor of the news to large parts of the American population that something really serious and rather bad is happening. And then you hear, oh, it's the virus. Oh, maybe I ought to take that seriously. Maybe I don't go out. So that's, as it were, to my mind, it's it's kind of a weird and irrational conveyor belt, but I think it's actually quite powerful. Yeah, and, and negative oil prices in and of themselves is kind of a almost useful, like, show because it sounds so odd and bizarre yeah. it's almost lucky that that happened because it really tells you oh something's really going on oil prices everything's about oil oil is negative that's you know yeah. it really just is this localized supply like sh- uh shortage of storage capacity type thing that's like a temporary blip but it's a temporary blip that tells an immediate visceral yeah. story that gets yeah. it going yeah exactly i think you do need hooks like that don't you so I mean, this brings us to March, March and April. I think I want to start with Europe and North America, and then kind of go out. Uh, what 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 was the immediate response, both public health wise and economic wise, to the extent they can even be separated? You know, carrying carrying us forward. And you know, now February is the month of non-response, and March is the beginning of actually having a response. Yeah, no, then, I mean, events begin to, you know, it just becomes this tumbling kind of series of actions. You see on the public health side, you know, the kind of governance Olympics kicking off. There's an incredible legitimation pressure on governments at all levels uh, around the world to justify what they're doing, to retain the trust of citizens. Doesn't work in most places, Um, you know, but like, you know, it's a real scrambling effort. And what's historically unique about it is that it extends to practically every government in the world. You know, the few truculent standouts, the ones that really toe the line, you know, Belarus, Tanzania, like they actually carry it through all the way through. But even, I mean, in the book, I try, I show like somebody like Trump, who was predisposed to be cynical about the entire business, he folds in the end, right? By the end of the month, you you can't uphold that position. The same with Boris Johnson, you know, in the UK, who's famous for saying that, you know, the character in, in Jaws that he most identifies with is the mayor who insists on keeping the beach open, even as the people are being eaten. Like, you know, he like, he flaunts his... I hadn't heard that. Yeah, he, he literally, he literally said, you know, but he's like kind of a, you know, he's a debater, Oxford Union. It's a funny point. Like, you're laughing. He scored his point. And nevertheless, he has to fold too. Plus, then he gets deathly sick and almost dies. Like, so yes, there is that process, and you know, it concludes with Modi and India coming. And that's you know another one point three billion people in lockdown. So these are huge slices of humanity being subsumed in in this process, which is unique historically, right? Because if you go back to Spanish flu a hundred years earlier, the, the epidemic that was most commonly compared to, the really significant thing about that is that the vast, the overwhelming majority of people who died are not counted because they are the subjects, one might always better say, the objects of British imperial rule, and they're just not keeping count. But, you know, it's in India and in, in Africa where the majority of people die in that epidemic. Um, whereas this time around, 
there aren't many people on earth that don't have a government that says we should do something about this. This concerns us too. At some basic level, we have an obligation and indeed, you know, we, we take it to be our duty to protect our citizens. And then, you know, all sorts of various measures ensue, more or less effective, but at least as it were, they take up the challenge. On the financial market side, you know, it's a sort of, that story of pandemic measures is so difficult to recount because it's, you know, it's just one series of mind-bogglingly complicated, difficult decisions <laughs> made in detail in the, you know, elementary schools of Cairo, Egypt, or, you know, the suburbs of Moscow, or whatever. Um, you know, when my mind just sort of drifts back to the places where, as it were, decision-making appears more concentrated and easier to track, and the financial markets are preeminently a space like that. And, from the second week of March, we see this extraordinary drama unfolding in the most important financial market of all, which is the US Treasury market, which in terms of openly traded treasuries, you know, at the beginning of the crisis, I correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like 18 point, I think I seem to remember like $18.1 trillion of, of US Treasuries outstanding. And that market is normally assumed to be just infinitely liquid, right? You can you can always sell. You can always you don't have to haggle crucially when you sell, right? So you don't have to negotiate about price, and when you do sell, your decision to sell doesn't affect the price. So that's from a decision making perspective when you're managing a big portfolio, a profoundly attractive thing to have at your disposal. And um, that market is just malfunctioning. It's not just that the prices are going in the wrong way. So rather than the prices going up as people run out of equities and yields going down, which is kind of what we see in late February, early March, um, we in fact see yields surging um, as people try and sell bonds as well. And even before we get into the nitty gritty of why that's happening, the mere fact that it's happening is 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 terrifying. It throws a bunch of algorithms off. And... Secondly, the market's not working. So if you do want to sell, it's really sticky. It, you can sometimes not even find a buyer. And that's profoundly disorientating because those treasuries are supposed to be safe assets and safe assets are supposed to be, you know, the whole thing about them is that they're, you don't really need to know a lot about them. They're supposed to be kind of what's called information indifferent. I think this is Gorton's definition, right? You, you can make decisions without really knowing much about the particulars. And all of a sudden that's not true. Um, you kind of, you know, you need to know somebody who wants to buy them for starters, because otherwise you're stuck. And that's terrifying, because if that market comes unhinged, it cuts the ground underneath, from underneath almost all the other portfolio constructions that you've got, because they are all hinged on assumptions about liquidity. And if that liquidity is gone, none of your other allocations really uh, make sense. Um I yeah I spoke to this I had this I did, did this call with somebody in Hong Kong who vividly described you know when you tell these stories to market participants you always think you're going to bore them and in fact it unleashes like post traumatic stress disorder <laughs> symptoms and he suddenly you know compulsively telling yeah I've got to tell you this story about this day when I was in Hong Kong and I tried to offload five billion in treasuries and I couldn't do it and it was like sweaty palms and oh my god I and he stumbles out of his office and he looks up at the high rise his apartments in and. He just says, well, if I can't sell the treasuries, I definitely can't sell the apartment. Like, you know, there's, you, the, that liquidity is not there. Um, so anyway, that's, that's the core of the, the financial market problem in March, or its most vivid symptom. The causes go deeper throughout the entire ramified system, but that's the most powerful symptom, and it's panic-inducing, which is what then triggers the central banks into buying on a huge scale. Yeah. And yeah, so there's this, I, I'm still finding the balance of my role as an interviewer 
<laughs> on this podcast. Um, you know, this is the second episode. I'm still I'm still finding that balance. And, you know, I want to draw your views and tell the stories yeah. of the book. But on the other hand, obviously, Notes on the Crises has, has its own perspective on this stuff and especially has its own perspective on the Federal Reserve's crisis response in, in, in March. So, you know, th- that being said, the focus on, you know, stick with, with how you view things, uh, you know, we get, we have these mass of, of crisis facilities. Um, and what I specifically want to draw out is what do you think that the Fed learned or didn't learn from its 2008 experience with crisis facilities in the design of, of, of these? Well, the design I mean, you're, of you're the real master of a lot of this stuff. So, I mean, like, <laughs> you know, um, I mean, they knew the core of their response. They do a bunch of really trick technical stuff, a lot of which highly controversial. You know, they make a bunch of promises which are radically new. They engage in a relationship with Congress, which is novel, which they didn't have to the same extent in 2008. But the big thing they're actually doing on a truly epic, you know, historic scale is buying US treasuries and um, mortgage-backed securities. And the basic mechanics for doing that, in fact, the personnel who were involved in doing it were frontline in 2008. So in terms of the largest, you know, thing they were doing, that they, they, they had plenty of practice. And that's, as it were, the carryover. The, the novel elements are, you know, a batch of promises, and th- which they already began to make in 2008-9 to various types of private credit provision, but they go much further this time round. But I think ultimately they're doing that. The more we know about this avalanche that happened in 2020, and it's worth saying that new research is coming out practically every week because it was so disturbing and ought really to be the centre of a fairly serious push at market reform. Um, The more we know, the more I think we appreciate the fact that the sales of the treasuries, which are anomalous really on the scale that was happening, were quite significantly to do with the fact that private credit was destabilised. And so the funds that hold balances of private you know shares and private corporate bonds didn't want to offload those and so reached for the stuff that was easiest to sell and that's why the treasury market was under as much pressure as it was and so and then once the treasury market started sliding it, it induced a whole variety of effects including with hedge funds which had various types of bets on treasury movement price movements which came unstuck caused them to kind of close out their positions. There's a foreign element to this story as well, which is quite considerable. But anyway, the Fed's actions are a kind of uh, roundabout strategy for absorbing the stress in the treasury market immediately, either by buying or providing repo facilities for private holders to hold the treasuries, and at the same time trying to use promises to stabilize the private credit market, thereby reducing the selling pressure. And it's the two things together that really do the job by by early April. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I in real in real time, I was much more focused on like I covered this stuff. This was stuff that was important, and I I hit it as well. But I was really focused on the corporate credit facilities and the and the and the municipal liquidity yep. facility as the extensions further out um, yep. and 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 the most outwardly facing. You know, politics that would be relevant to 
ordinary people in terms of what the Fed or the Fed was doing. But yeah, it is important in itself that there is this treasury market and this financial plumbing aspect that also quote unquote needs to be fixed. And in the idea that we're going to have large flows in crisis periods where people are trying to offload their treasuries and, and, and we, and we, if we believe that they should be able to do that and meet their liquidity demands on demand, it suggests a different approach to, to treasury market infrastructure. It suggests a different, you know, you know, one way of course is the, is the regulatory way of reducing, you know, trying with financial regulation to reduce people's, you know, needs for the sudden rush of treasury liquidity. Sure. And the other way is, is making the, the tre- treasuries abstractly very liquid to literally moment to moment liquid by say, you know, having a, you know, a floor price to treasuries, which you can always sell, sell them to the fed and the standing facility, uh, yeah. a standing purchase facility and so on, which as you say in the book brings up all sorts of politics about the relation between central banks and government uh, governments, if not the, if not actually the, the, the real concrete plumbing and technical plumbing infrastructure that's actually existed since then. Yep. Yeah, no, I mean, it's this weird intersection, isn't it, of, um, well, choice, the most fundamental choices are, as it were, like life support maintenance of the existing system, as opposed to structural interventions of the type that you are suggesting that would actually make the system less needy. And then the third radical option is, well, maybe we should just have let it fail, which was very much more to the fore when you think about Bear Stearns in 2008, right? There was that radical conservative and to a degree also left critique that said, you know, we should just have allowed them to fail. We should have allowed bankruptcy to take place. And then there were the various arguments about whether or not what the damage with the collateral damage would have been. But those are the sort of three options, right? You either let nature take its course and the system, allow the system to melt down and then try and pick up the pieces. You do emergency interventions that keep it going. But the constant, the downside of that is you also effectively underwrite it and underwrite the behavior. Even if you don't have to believe the naive moral hazard argument that says that people engage in this speculation because they expect to be bailed out. Because I don't think they do, but de facto you enable them to rinse and repeat by keeping them in the business. And the third element of the of, would would be the much more radical reformist strategy would be to say this time and then you know, but not, never again. Exactly, we need to take some of the risk out of the system. You you know that that some of these some of the fund structures are, are just extraordinary, right? Where they're basically promising investors above above cash deposit rates of return for instruments which the investors treat as though they were cash deposits. So you can have instant withdrawal of your commitment to various types of mutual fund and yet nevertheless expect some considerable rate of return on them. And those two things in the current environment are just not compatible with each other. And and it puts the fund managers in a you know a moment of crisis like this in a in an impossible position because if they gate them and try and stop the outflows they run the risk of exacerbating the panic, and if they don't, what they end up having to do is liquidate the most liquid bits of their portfolios, which are these treasury elements. So the the construction, the promise being made from the outset is basically, you know, is is one that gives hostages to fortune, is going to put you in the position where you're going to have to do these kind of bailouts. It's invidious. 
and it underwrites, you know, profit taking really um, in in good times. I mean, it's not clear how far it really so. I mean, it socialises risk. It's just you know sometimes it's quite difficult to actually point to who's harmed, but certainly it facilitates high risk profit seeking behaviour. So now I think I want to turn to fiscal policy, fiscal policy in Europe, fiscal policy in the in the United States, and your angle on what this crisis response was like and the ways in which it was in some sense radical and the ways in the another sense in which it was conservative or deeply conservative. Yeah. I mean, it's radical in that in a short space of time, politicians agreed to provide very large scale support for the economy by fiscal means. Uh, the scale of the deficits is gigantic, jaw-droppingly so, in fact, which is also a novel element. And looked at in detail, it's surprising, not to say radical, in the sense that it did in fact provide support to low-income families on a considerable scale in the United States. And when that happens, given the way in which the American political system is rigged, that's a surprise and um, it's innovative and novel. It didn't attempt, as it were, structural change, but um, it provided cash handouts. And that's where, as it were, the argument begins to slide the other way, because this is, in a sense, the welfare state without the state. It's a kind of minimal form of support. And the broader political frame within which it was possible was bipartisan, because this was an extreme emergency, and because the aim of the package after all, is fundamentally to maintain the status quo, restore the status quo, make people whole. And it made, of course, you know, huge swaths of society whole. Europe has really quite tight regulations on who you can give money to in handouts. And so in the European case, they literally lifted the rules, which mean that national governments can't subsidize businesses directly. They have those to prevent competition between nation states. And that's a particularly stark demonstration of this point, that it's easy to get bipartisan large-scale backing for a policy which is going to give money to absolutely everyone, um, which is to a degree what something like CARES was doing. So the overall aim is status quo orientated, but the effect is a deluge of cash going through the system to an extent that we haven't seen before. And to you know, if you look at the macroeconomic aggregates, the scale of the federal deficit to a very considerable extent offsets the shift in the you know balance sheets and decision making in the private sector whether by households and businesses so it is a you know it's an adequate fiscal policy response and we have seen the consequences of that this has been an unusually savage recession followed by an unusually rapid recovery at least at the level of macroeconomic aggregates so fiscal policy works at the kind of level in which you know keynesians left keynesians functional finance folks have always argued it would um, so that's the kind of balance. And it's in the American case, it's even combined with this extraordinarily contorted construction whereby a substantial slice of the money allocated is used to provide a kind of legal fig leaf for the activities of the Fed. This is, I mean, by any stretch of the imagination, entirely unnecessary, really, from a rationalist point of view. The Fed can just do whatever it needs to do, absorb whatever losses it needs to. But instead, they constructed this system whereby Congress appropriated funds, which were going to be used as a sort of loss-absorbing facility for the Fed, 
And that had a kind of comfort blanket function in two ways, or rather a comfort blanket function in the sense it made them feel better about allowing the Fed to make huge promises, which it largely didn't have to actually follow through on. And on the other hand, it allowed Mushin to claim that by way of the Fed, as though the Fed were a private bank, this money was going to be multiplied by a factor of 10. So then you could make the fiscal stimulus look much bigger. I mean, both of these both of these, you know, operations are really sort of building castles in the sky because they're, un- they're unnecessary if you were simply going to pursue an MMT, functional finance-inspired monetary fiscal policy. You, should, you could shortcut this whole stuff and take it out. But, but it, it, it provided the, uh, the, a kind of, yeah, a rather artificial but nevertheless quite compelling image of the Fed and Congress and the Treasury working hand-in-hand hand to backstop the American economy. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, w- I was going to bring up this issue next. I think in real time, I was the first one to really call this out as an accounting gimmick. Um, yeah, yeah, and- absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. I think, I think you're, you were very powerful on, on this. And um, no, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's and it's yeah, it, it drove me uh, <laughs> absolutely crazy at the time, especially as you were saying, is a big dollar as adding to this larger dollar amount. When the do- every penny, if if you have a sense that politics is limited to these concrete headline numbers, which we've kind of seen articulated and rearticulated over the past two years, devoting four hundred and fifty four billion of dollars of that headline mm-hmm. number to something that is just is just a back end, most generously called a plumbing issue. Uh, what drove me absolutely crazy, and ultimately the fiscal response ended up being, in some broad, vague sense, uh, sufficient. But uh, yeah, it was it was maddening at the time. But don't you mean when I, I I mean I read you on this, and and I and and it was I mean for me I, I and I totally sympathise with your reaction, but this for me is key to the whole argument really about you know the relationship between critical theories like MMT and functional finance and the you know, actually existing fiscal and monetary policy, yeah. which is that actually existing fiscal and monetary policy needs those fig leaves. It doesn't yeah. need them in a technical sense. And one can imagine a world in which in a stripped down rationalist way, we did away with all of that. But that's not the world that we're yeah. in, right? The world that key we're in. Key to the politics. Yeah, the, but it's key to the politics and key to an entire fabric and structure of thinking about these problems, which you can shift and you can move in various ways, but given its actually existing form, those kind of moves are, you know, they're just, as it were, the the, the, the play that you have to engage in. And I, I do think it had that double role of like making yeah. people feel better about the Fed's expansive promises, which one could have lots of different critical opinions about because they were extended to private creditors. And on the other hand, and I think this is where your criticisms really by it kind of it exaggerated the f- scale of the fiscal response. If, as it were, the fiscal response had ended up turning out to be inadequate, then I think one could have said this gimmicky leveraging thing, because that made them complacent and so they didn't do enough. But that's kind of that isn't in the end where we ended up, right? I mean, insofar as they didn't do enough, it was because they got problems in Congress. It wasn't because as it were, they exaggerated the scale of that stimulus by way of Newton's weird body arithmetic. That, I think, would have been a really cutting criticism. You know, that tenfold multiplication had led led people to lean back and say, oh, well, we don't need to do anything else. You know, Steve's got four trillion. Yeah. 
Well, Powell's got four trillion, thanks to Steve. Anyway, I, but but it's a it is it's a fascinating point. So, how does Europe fit into this fiscal response? And uh, more than anything else, the surprise of um, or of the shock of a big European fiscal response in the context of the past decade. Yeah, precisely. I mean, the 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 initial fear, especially because the pandemic, as it were, you know climaxes first in Europe, in Italy, of all places, which was at the heart of the Eurozone crisis, though Greece was in the forefront. But really, anxiety in Europe ever since the Eurozone crisis has really focused on Italy. And oh, God, you know, it's Italy that's hit hardest. Is this going to trigger a Eurozone meltdown? And then heartbreakingly, you know, the proposal from the Italians, the Spanish and the French that there should be Corona bonds. Ireland was also part of this coalition. And the really just brutal reaction from from Northern Europe, the Germans, Austrians, the Dutch, shooting this idea down that there should be common debt to address the crisis. So by April, I mean, there was really a sense that we were headed towards a rerun of the Eurozone crisis, where there would be no cooperation where the fiscal response would be inadequate and where the weakest states would be hung out to dry and would suffer bond market attack for no good reason other than that they were being hung out to dry by the combination of national governments and the ECB. And the ECB moved position first. I mean, there was a moment that the ECB looked as though it was going to confirm this in contentious circumstances, which still aren't really clear. Christine Lagarde gave a press interview in mid-March where she said spreads, in other words, the gap between Italian and German interest rates are not our problem, they're somebody else's problem. By presumption, Italy's fiscal policy makers are responsible for this, they should fix it, which was exactly not the message the markets needed. And within minutes, literally, she was walking that back. And by the third week of March, the ECB is in fact buying on a large scale and then basically opens up a Fed style, it's not Fed dimensions, but it's large scale, unlimited buying of sovereign bonds, in fact, to close spreads and reduce the spreads. So then the question is, is there going to be a fiscal response? something more constructive. The first important thing that happens, because it's always multi-tiered in Europe, right? The first important thing that happens is the commission says, which is the body in Brussels that, you know, supervenes this whole structure, we're going to limit, we're going to remove all the, the rules which normally constrain national fiscal policy. So that frees up national governments to make the fiscal response that's necessary. And they actually do most of the immediate work in responding to the crisis, exactly as in the United States. It's on national budgets that the immediate response falls. And because the ECB is there, that promise isn't just a vain promise, right? You can, if, if, there was, if the rules had been lifted, but the ECB hadn't been buying, then Italy, Spain, France would have been constrained by bond market pressure. But with the ECB in the market absorbing all of their new issuance, it really isn't an issue. It doesn't directly absorb their issuance, but it, it nets out as being absorption. And then the question is really, how can we move to a more permanent structure? Because if Italy blows out its debt, as it ends up doing, I mean, Italy goes from a debt to GDP ratio of like 133, 134% of GDP to over 150%. In fact, it sort of peaks close to 160 when GDP is depressed. That's going to cause a crisis if Italy has to carry on going down that route because the debt sustainability hawks are going to get going and you know there's the makings of a disaster there. So is there any way of taking substantial amounts of fiscal stimulus off the national balance sheet and transferring it somewhere else? 
And by the end of April, early May, a deal has been cooked up between the finance ministries of Germany and France, in which they basically agree to have corona bonds, but not in the name of national governments jointly, which was the contentious thing, but onto the balance sheet of the EU itself. Um, and the those will then be issued and then distributed to national governments on the basis of quite strict criteria. So this is um, the backdrop essentially to the Green Deal. Um, the vast majority of the money will go on investment and it will go on um, green and digital. So it's as though in the American context, the Europeans had done, you know, the CARES Act, the rescue plan and build back better to somewhat exaggerate because the scales aren't the same. But in terms of the political timeline, they do all of that bargaining compressed into the period between March and June 2020. And so as a political achievement, it's really rather remarkable because these are national governments representing 27 governments that have to agree because they decided to do the bailout package, the common infrastructure package, not for the Eurozone alone, but for the entire EU. So it's it's a remarkable step towards a common fiscal policy. And one of the key players in all of this was the then German finance minister, Olaf Scholz, who's now literally been inaugurated as Angela Merkel's successor as German chancellor. So that augurs well, potentially, for this being not just an exceptional intervention, but maybe a precedent for further steps down this path in future. Because the fantasy, of course, is that this is the beginning of a genuine fiscal capacity with a common safe asset issued by the EU. Unsurprisingly, when these things were put out, the bonds, they've been snapped up by markets. The bond, the auctions are massively oversubscribed. The yield is negative, I think. Certainly, the the rating is triple A. You know, there's huge unsatiated demand out there in Europe and elsewhere for very high quality European bonds, which haven't been available recently because the ECB has been buying so many and the Germans have forced such a fiscal austerity program on much of Europe. So to have an issuance of hundreds of billions of absolutely top grade European debt is, in fact, you know, a boon for the markets, which is something... European fiscal conservatives find really hard to understand and is, of course, a key MMT point, which is that if you choose to do it this way, you're doing some people a favour, right? You are providing people with the chance to hold government paper that is at least safe, even if it only yields, in the European case, trivial um, uh, rates of return. In fact, for the vast majority of Europe, including Greece, by the end of that summer, the yields are negative for short-term borrowing. Which it's impossible to communicate how crazy that is, particularly it's, Greece. It's uh, crazy and appalling, right? Because if that's <laughs> possible in Greece now, when Greece's debt to GDP level last time I looked was like two hundred and twenty percent of GDP, right? So, so this would have been possible throughout the agony between twenty ten and twenty fifteen, if only the ECB had been willing to step into the market and buy this stuff. And because they declared this a pandemic program, Greece, though, you know, its credit rating is shot to hell still, like is eligible to be bought. So the ECB has to define this as an emergency. This is something that's going to be discussed through to the spring of next year is like how they're going to continue this. Because one of the things that happens when the pandemic purchase program expires is that the range of countries they buy for narrows and Greece may fall out of the protective umbrella. Um, provided by the ECB. They'll no doubt have to find some workaround because to just nakedly expose Greece at this point would be potentially, I think, very destabilizing. Um, but yes, absolutely. It's just, 
it's a it's baffling right horrifying to discover this agency to just make the problem into the non-problem it should always have been and well that's that's europe and the united states and we could spend three more hours talking about both of them if not six but i I do want to make sure that we touch on the rest of the world like what is the economic response in south south america africa and asia outside of china what are they contending with and how much of a response do they even are they even able to manage so they're contending with the largest um, uh, investor panic that they've ever had to deal with. So the capital flights out of the emerging markets, low-income countries, so-called frontier markets, in the spring is worse than the taper tantrum of 2013 when Bernanke you know, threatened to end QE and there was this panicked run back towards the US and worse than 2008. So it's an almighty shock and many of us in the spring of March, April were very concerned that we were going to be looking at a sort of global debt crisis to compound all the other problems that the world was facing that would disable the ability of emerging market and low-income countries to respond to the crisis. Part of the pressure here, as is often the case in this kind of situation, is a rising dollar. And because so many of their um, liabilities are denominated in dollars, this is a huge issue both for the public and the private sector. Um, classically, classically, I say. Um, and it's also not, not great for their exports because a lot of their exports are denominated in dollars. And so um, a, a, a rising dollar right now in the global system as it's currently wired is bad for global credit, if you like. It just makes credit more expensive. So we were seeing this squeeze. And, and, and it, and and the nightmare, you know, from the point of view of the pandemic has played out in full, right? The the nightmare in terms of mortality in the big emerging markets, uh, cities, Lima, Peru, across Brazil, in South Africa has played out for real. And uh, worst expectations have come true in many respects. And And the same is true also for the real economy. So best estimates of growth for the low-income and emerging market economies of the world are very pessimistic for the coming years ahead. South Africa's unemployment rate has rocketed from, you know, 30% to closer to 36, 37%. So we're talking about apocalyptic levels of unemployment in South Africa, which are part of the backdrop to the rioting that we've seen. Part of it was to do with internal factional politics in the ANC over Zuma, but a lot of it has got to do with just misery in South Africa. And this is true for many of the Latin American countries as well. So there has been a real economic shock and a a massive public health disaster. But, and this is the crucial point, it wasn't compounded by the, you know, utterly destructive, comprehensive financial crisis that many people expected. This isn't to say that life's been easy for Argentina or Ecuador or Lebanon, right? The hard cases tipped over the edge and found themselves renegotiating. Ecuador had to go through a default process, you know, a bond renegotiation with its creditors. But in general, the emerging market and low-income countries came through the crisis much better than we anticipated. And this tells us something about the global credit system which is that that capacity to, as it were, take credit and money out of the equation as a crisis driver, um, as a source of just insoluble problems, um, the capacity to, to, as it were, negate that as an issue, which is key to you know so much of progressive monetary thinking recently to say, look, actually, this shouldn't be the heart of the problem. The problem should be 
actual real resources, labor, investment, capacity constraints, and yes, public health. Money really shouldn't be the center of your concerns and finance and budget deficits. In a weird kind of way, that's actually what played out globally. And the first element of this is that the Fed just doused everyone with dollar liquidity, which really helps. And reduce it, the, the dollar trends down again, it reduces the pressure. And then at a national level, several of the more capable emerging market and low-income countries actually proved capable even of doing things like um, QE on a modest scale. And they're able to do that in part because a large part of their liabilities are in fact now in domestic currency. So the fantasy of sovereign, you know, monetary sovereignty, which for a long time really was a fantasy as far as emerging and low-income countries are concerned, is beginning actually to acquire a kind of reality. Now that has a social foundation. These are societies which are getting richer. They are, you know, there's an embourgeoisement process going on. The resources which are mobilized in those local currency bond markets are, you know, reflect inequalities in those societies. And they also reflect the interest of yield chasing Western investors who've gone literally everywhere in the world looking for anything that promises a decent rate of return. And this structure of monetary stability that's been put in place is not just, as it were, a panacea. It's not just, as it were, you know, uh, utterly benign. And somebody like Daniela Gabor, you know, my brilliant uh, friend and colleague, will say that this is the Wall Street system in operation. But we know how Wall Street feels about imaginative monetary solutions. It quite <laughs> likes them. It quite likes them because they stabilize credit and avoid unnecessary crunches. And that's precisely what we saw in action last year. So real to reiterate, because I come across as too optimistic, and I don't mean to say that at all, yeah. you know, real public health disaster, fundamental issues about growth models, unemployment, informality, inequality, all of that absolutely for real. But we did demonstrate here too, in a way, that if you're willing to organize the institutions and to play the politics and to put ideology to a side, and this is one of the remarkable things that's happened, right? The Washington consensus, as was in the 1990s, it's dead. It's completely dead, right? People are engaging in a whole bunch of macroprudential interventions, um, you know, huge reserve buildups to give them a little bit of leeway, currency manipulation when they need to do it. And everyone knows it's messy. Everyone knows that from a sort of strict micro model, this might not be optimal, but it means that you can constrain the damage and limit the damage in a crisis situation and preserve continuity. And a lot of people, including some very powerful people, have a vested interest in that. And so we've seen, we've begun to see, if you like, the extension to the emerging market and low-income world of the very messy, very gray zone, very dirty kind of fixes that we've gotten used to seeing in the West since 2008, and preeminently, of course, in the US, where that's the entire model, right? This sort of rigged public-private partnership, very much to the benefit of those with the heaviest stakes in, in the financial system. But nevertheless, also avoiding the worst, which would be some sort of 1930s-style full banking crisis, you know, uh, collapse in the money supply, implosion, deflationary disaster. That didn't happen. That hasn't happened. How you know how long the low-income and uh, um, middle-income countries can continue this game? Whether they can continue it if the Fed changes position, and this is the big; these are the big stakes of the next twelve months, right? If the Fed seriously begins to tighten, what are the ramifications for um, exposed emerging market low-income countries? All of that's yet to be played out. But 2020 was really fascinating in revealing 
this new, I call it, you know, the, 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 both the IMF and the BIS have actually begun to try and formulate, not rules exactly, but a grid for understanding what those countries are doing. And um, the IMF has this thing called, they call, they call the integrated framework, which tries to, as it were, map all these different tools of intervention that are available. And um, that's the world that we're in. It's somewhere between one size fits all, they say, and anything goes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's that's yeah. kind of the world that they're trying to describe. Yeah, and that's interesting in itself. But nonetheless, you know, as you're sort of touching on, there were countries left out of yeah. that ability to find some ability to respond in what you call the, the toolkit, quote, yeah. unquote. And then there's also this question about how long that's going to go for certain countries who have kind of been on the right side, but still have a lot of foreign denominated debt and so on. So I'm going to touch on a little bit of the complete failure of an international response to really relieving the burden of foreign denominated debt for those countries and organizing a sort of global response that would ensure expanded response to uh, the crisis everywhere. Yeah, I mean, what we haven't seen is the big... Um, debt relief effort that one would have hoped to see, right? So, I mean, it's probably utopian to imagine it, but and it's important to differentiate here, right? So, the capable Latin American states basically engaged in various sorts of deals with the IMF to provide them with liquidity facilities because they don't all qualify for swap lines. Brazil and Mexico do, but the rest of Latin America doesn't. They don't have a regional financial bank. So they basically engage in, they pay the IMF commissions to the order of, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year, sometimes billions of dollars a year to gain access to liquidity facilities, which will enable them to cope with a major balance of payments crisis or a run on the, you know, on the private balance sheets of their financial system or whatever. So they're in one league and they're, they're a very capable league at this point. Um, but operating under constraints for sure. But these are also middle-income countries with GDP per capita, you know, between five and fifteen, twenty thousand dollars per year. So that kind of actor, no big deal for them. But on the other hand, also able to maneuver their way through the situation. Well, what we really haven't seen, and I think this is really an indictment of the international community, is a collective, large-scale debt relief effort for the low-income countries of the world. Now, they aren't a big piece of the world economy, which is part of the reason why they don't get a lot of attention, right? Collectively, they maybe account for 1% or 2% of the global economy. That's about a billion people living on very low incomes. So they're no one's top priority because, quote unquote, they don't pose a systemic risk. You know, it's one thing for Brazil to end up in a serious crisis, which is a G20 player, a major piece of the world economy by any accounts. But for large parts of sub-Saharan Africa, it just is an irrelevance from the point of view of anything other than the adventurous investors who are in there, whether or not they swim or sink, right, or, the, or drown financially, because they don't have a spillover. But from the point of view of global development, from the point of view also, and this is the critical point perhaps, of a collective response to the virus, which doesn't count GDP per capita, but just goes from body to body to body, Right? The failure to provide a substantial financial backstop for those countries is really dramatic. Um, proposals were on the board from the very early stage. Uh, vocal African states joined together with the EU to push at the spring meetings of the IMF and the World Bank for a, a SDR issuance. Right, So as it were, the issuance of the you know, the, the money created by the IMF, but that was shot down by the US Treasury. Uh, I think they were basically terrified of 
running into congressional opposition because some of that money would go to the likes of Venezuela or Iran, and they didn't want to try and you know provoke Congress over that. So that killed the whole idea. Um, and then negotiating debt relief is a nightmarish problem where you have to square the interests of multinational, multilateral global creditors, so the IMF and the World Bank, who are super senior creditors who really don't make concessions on their loans, bilateral so-called Paris creditor, official lending from European, Japan, South Korea, United States, but also increasingly countries like India, private lending to low-income countries, and then you know big actors that are new to the scene like China, which has emerged as an absolute massive funder of low-income countries. And then we really just don't have the political structure. There are like a mass of conflicting interests in which, as it were, the question is who goes first and who makes the most significant concessions. And it's incredibly difficult to hammer out those kind of deals. And frankly, no effort was made to do it, right? So it's not just that it was difficult, but very little political will was put behind it. So instead, there's this pathetic G20 deal, which is a debt service suspension initiative, which is net present value neutral. I mean, it literally means that the low-income countries don't benefit, right? All it does is to postpone their payments now and increase their payments later. So it's literally just, as it were, a kind of balloon credit arrangement whereby you can get through this crisis but pay more later. Because if you do it that way, as it were, it doesn't really amount to a restructuring. It's just literally just a rephasing uh, of the flow. And that's all that came out of the of the 2020 moment. Finally, now with the Biden administration and a little bit of imagination, they've got the SDR deal done. But even when they got the SDR deal done, it turned out they didn't actually put in place the mechanisms redistributing the allocations of SDRs, which go overwhelmingly to the richest countries, to the poorer countries. I mean, they're still working. I mean, it's the lack of lack of commitment to actually recognizing this. No, I would go beyond an emergency to say this is an opportunity to demonstrate the capacity for collective action. And in light of the urgency of the climate problem and the pandemic problem, it's one we have to seize, right? And 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 that none of that is forthcoming. So it really is a lamentable, a totally predictable in many ways. I mean, I, you know, the crisis, the crisis is, in many ways, as much a revelation as anything else of the underlying structures of power in the world and inequality in the world. And this is one, you know, one naked uh, demonstration of that point. I I think, uh, you know, if we had a little more time, I would talk about vaccines. I might have you back on or talk to someone else to talk about the vaccine situation. So I think I'm going to jump to my, uh, skip past the vaccines and talk to my final question is I can't, um, you know, this might be a little self-important, but I can't resist bringing up that I'm cited in the second to last footnote of the book. Um, however, what I'm interested in less is not my own place in the footnote, but what you mean by the broader statement that you're making. Um, the sentence, the footnote is associated with says, quote, a critical history of modern power must find a way into the thickets of analysis, information, and knowledge produced day by day from inside the apparatus as its protagonists struggle to cope with the radical outcomes their systems are producing. And the footnote says three exemplary analysts working in this mode are Daniela Gabor, Nathan Tankis, and Carolyn Sisko, yeah. and all interviewed by David Beckworth. Can you uh, lay out what, where you're, what you're trying to get at with this point? Yes, I mean, and I mean it very sincerely. And it, um, and um, but I think the problem here is, you know, where where do folks who are interested in gaining critical purchase on reality 
for whatever political aims, you know, whatever faction of the progressive political spectrum one belongs to, all of us need to be realistic, right? And how do we gain purchase on that reality? Now, there are folks within our camp who are committed to the idea that there are fundamental verities, you know, basic truth outlined in classical texts. And the challenge really is to find the right classical text and apply it to the right moment. And then that really will open up and unlock, you know, reality for us. And I find that profoundly unpersuasive. And the people in the tradition of critical thinking, perhaps most preeminently people like Karl Marx, who I admire most, were not committed to that idea. They were no doubt committed to a sort of general and analytic, which was largely philosophical, metaphilosophical, anthropological in part. But then when it came to the nitty gritty, you know, Marx spent decades in the British Museum reading what? Well, what he read was factory inspector reports because it was by way of reading factory inspector reports and blending them with Hegel and blending them with French revolutionary thought that you had a chance of understanding the dynamic, the radical protean, constantly changing challenge that capitalism poses. But you have to start with something, as it were, that comes from within inside the system, something that you acknowledge as being a tainted source, complex, you know, determined by the limits of what the British Parliament, the powers that it would grant to factory inspectors, but nevertheless astonishingly revealing. And I started my, you know, my first book was about the history of economic statistics. And so my, my sympathy throughout my career has been precisely with that kind of knowledge that goes inside the machine, a machine that you're critical of, skeptical about, and then from inside it, as it were, attempts to levitate, to pull out, to extract from within the innards, right, insight into how that system works, how it might be potentially changed, how it could be exposed to criticism in a productive way. And that's what I see all three of you in various ways doing. And you're all very closely aligned, I think, in this respect. And I've learned an enormous amount from all three of you. And I hope, in a sense, to be the next chain in the conveyor belt of of conveying that kind of knowledge to uh, a broader audience of saying, look, folks, when you want to understand 2008, you need to read the BIS and other analysts like that. There's this school of thought, which is called macro finance. It's not by coincidence. It's come along now because it's a way of the system making sense of itself. And if you grasp this, you'll understand more about 2008 than you will, forgive me for saying so, than going back to the verities of the labor theory of value or even you know, conventional Keynesian macro that focuses on balance of payments issues and the twin deficits. You'll understand more. Let when you know the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Let me show you what kind of an account can we can produce. And I think one of the kindest compliments ever anyone's paid me is in your review of Crash. You said, "I can't believe what a interesting or maybe even radical account Two's manages to produce from such conservative sources." And like, <laughs> and I took that as yay. That, like, that's exactly what I wanted to do. And the one of the effects of that, and you know that as well, just as well as I do. In fact, you're a pioneer of this. Is you also acquire an audience you wouldn't necessarily expect to have. Because folks, as it were, on the other side of the fence who made other political choices or just other life choices, right, to become Fed economists or bank economists or whatever, can read your work. They can read my work and go, you know what? I mean, this is my world. I understand this. Now, he may be taking it or she like, you know, like Daniela or Carolyn may be taking it in a direction that like, 
I'm not particularly comfortable with, but I can't deny that the starting point is a reality I recognize. In fact, I may even myself have produced this description for them to use. So we're kind of repurposing. You know, it's a little bit like certain sorts of modern art that find objects and repurpose them in various ways. And I'm very into that, basically. And yeah, so no compliment to you and to, to my other friends on that list is like, this seems to me the way to go. It's not the only kind of critical thought. There are going to, people, going to be people who make the defense that certain sorts of critical thought needs to be launched from the radical outside, right? And it's only from absolutely outside the system that you can really mount that or may find themselves for whatever reason in the position of being radical outsiders, right? As a result, for instance, of racial identity or a sexual identity or whatever else, like othered, whether they like it or not. But, you know, I can't say that about myself. I'm, I've been an insider in various ways all my life. I like to be honest about that fact because not being honest about it makes me feel fundamentally unat ease. And I don't think it's a materialist position. I think we should be clear about where we actually stand within the system. And from my vantage point and from the sort of vantage point that you've developed, sort of an insider outsider or an outside insider or whatever, you know, that's how I would describe you anyway. Like, we can see things. There are, there are a whole bunch of things we will never be able to see. I'll never be able to, you know, really understand the position of a black man in America in the current moment. I'm never really going to be able to understand that, right? I have to admit that limit on what I'm ever going to be able to grasp. I'm never going to know what it means to fear random arrest and lethal violence if I'm walking down the street with a hoodie on as a six foot four, 230 pound dude. But if I was black, I would know that intimately, right? Um, but what I may be able to understand is something like something like this problem, right, which is available to me and open to me in some sense that other problems are not. And so that is, as it were, um, uh, the the kind of critical project which I admire in you folks and and uh, you know wanted to associate myself with and and to give a shout out to. And I do think of myself and these books, shut down, crashed, as as sort of extensions of that conveyor belt. I think, you know, I appreciate that very much. And I, I think Daniela and Carolyn do too. And I, thank you so much for, for your time today. Where where can my audience find you and find what you're working on? So um, I'm uh, at Adam-2s uh, um, um, on Twitter. And uh, the other place to really follow what I'm up to and thinking about is on Substack. I have a newsletter called Chartbook. And um, encourage everyone to check that out. Um, I've also got a website that says it were the anchor for all my various activities, adamtoos.com, where you'll find stuff about the books and not just shut down, but the preceding books um, um, in what amounts at this point to a kind of a series. Um, so those are the three venues. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been the Notes on the Crises podcast, and I'm your host, Nathan Tankus. To find and subscribe to the podcast, as well as to the newsletter, go to crisisnotes.com. That's C-R-I-S-E-S-N-O-T-E-S.com. I'm currently selling annual subscriptions for 50% off in an end-of-year sale, which makes it a great time to subscribe. Among other things, a paid subscription comes with access to written transcripts of every Notes on the Crises episode. Have a good 2021 and see you in 2022. Notes on the Crises. <laughs> Ha 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 ha!